1: She lived in Vancouver, and and uh, you know she had divorced a number of years before that, and she uh, found herself going on a blind date, which she never imagined she'd ever do. And uh, she was at home, and she found herself, you know, getting into a dress and putting makeup on, even though she hadn't worn makeup for probably the previous, you know, eight or nine months. And going to this um, going to this restaurant, and then meeting this guy, and I don't know how they figured this out. I mean, I, I'm in admiration of this in some respects. They found out within the first ten minutes, and they named it within each with between each other. Hey, listen, there's there's no chemistry. There's nothing else going on here, and that's fine. But let's just enjoy the rest of the dinner. And it wasn't until they named that did they get into who they are as individuals and she just turned around he said something like you know i prefer women who don't wear makeup for example and she goes oh my god you're kidding me she said i just put on makeup because i thought that's the thing i should do and i hate wearing makeup and i haven't worn makeup for like you know eight or nine months or whatever it was and don't want to wear it for the next eight or nine months and it was it was almost they did, they had dressed up got into their armor to go and do battle um, or to go and impress and it turns out that neither of them they were both posturing yeah. And I think we are so consumed is the word I would use. Consumed by what people think. And I with respect to anybody who's listening to says, No, I, I used to be like that, I've let that completely go. I would with respect challenge you deeply on that. Yeah, thank you. It's, uh, I can honestly say it's an absolute and utter privilege. Every time I've talked to you, it's been, I know what it's been like for the audience, but I can tell you it's been uh, immensely rewarding for me. So thank you.
2: Well, like I told you before we hit record, I don't think anybody uh, in our audience is going to be complaining that you are back for a fourth time. You have a new book out, which we will talk about in quite a bit of detail, but Before we do that, I want to ask you something that I don't believe that I've asked you before. And that is, what did your parents do for a living? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career?
1: My mother was a stay-at-home mom. And I think that she, in later life, had some regrets and has some regrets around that. She is a massive animal lover. And I don't think she ever fully embraced and stepped into that. So when I was growing up as a kid, or maybe when I was even before I was born, my mother would have homed students. Um, my parents chose to put us through private school, even though arguably they couldn't really afford it. Uh, so put them under a fair bit of pressure. So my mother did that for for income. But for the most part, she was a stay-at-home mom. Um, and my dad was in sales. And he ended up becoming the sales director of a very large um, distribution and drinks company, you know, beverages, soft drinks, pop, alcohol, et cetera, et cetera, which were eventually acquired by Guinness. He contemplated becoming an entrepreneur and, um, And as most of us do when we think about setting up our own business, we often think, sometimes from a very limited standpoint, sometimes we think about it through the lens of who we are and what we've done, as opposed to what's possible outside of that on the peripheral. And I remember him looking at buying a pub uh, just outside of the city of Dublin. And I'll always remember going to see the pub and it would have been a huge uh, outlay, and it would have been a big change in our lives. And I'm so glad he never did, because I think it would have he'd be in his grave now if he if he did. Both in terms of the work ethic, the smoking in the pubs at the time, and just the general lifestyle. So my dad was in sales, and my mom was a stay at home mom. Yeah, and what? Uh, and how, how did that affect yeah. me? I think it affected in lots of ways. I think. um I, I I think what it has done is, I think there's a lot of talk about entrepreneurship in the world. And I do believe that we are building um, in societal terms and business terms into into a place where we're going to have an explosion beyond even what we're seeing in terms of entrepreneurship. However, I don't believe you need to be an entrepreneur to be successful. And I don't think you need to be an entrepreneur to be happy. So I feel that my parents have indirectly or directly given me that perspective because my dad loved what he did. And he did everything he did with 100% conviction and he was always deeply loyal so i i learned a lot indirectly from him doing that
2: yeah did your parents pass on any particular advice about what you should do with your life and career uh, as you became an adult
1: my mother always harped on about health your health is your wealth and i'm sure that saying is not uh you know trademarked by my mom but she did she did harp on about it and i say harp on about it because it felt like it was more of a lecture until later in life i realized that actually it's, it's, inc- it's imperative. And I, I think we all kind of intellectually know that, but a lot of us emotionally don't put the value on our own skin. Um, my dad didn't directly say anything, but I can, I can give you numerous stories. And I always remember one simple little analogy or story where my dad had a client who canceled on a golf trip. So he invited me, <coughs> excuse me. And when we stopped, uh, we went in for lunch and the bus driver, as bus drivers tend to do, they tend to either sit outside and eat their own lunch are sitting in a different part of the restaurant. And my dad said, you know, let's call him Albert, I can't remember his name. Where's Albert? And Albert was sitting around the corner on his own. And I always remember my dad going around the corner insisting that Albert not just comes and has lunch with them, but he joins them at the table. And I remember that just being a very subtle thing and a very curious thing for me at the time. And I remember... Through that, realizing that actually nobody is above us. Nobody is above a McKernan. uh, And that's, it wasn't spoken at home, but nobody is more important than us. But we are definitely not more important than any other human being on earth. And that we're all equal. And I think that's what my parents, they didn't tell me. And that's the problem with a lot of parenting. A lot of parenting is lecturing what you should do and who you should be. My parents showed me. and, uh, And I think, you know, if I have any good traits, I think a lot of them are down to them. Yeah.
2: So one thing that I know from our previous conversations is that you're dyslexic and I wonder, you know, how you navigated the, the challenges and journey of dyslexia while you were younger and what perceptions did you have about what was going to be possible with your life and your work based on the fact that you had dyslexia and then how did those perceptions change over time?
1: Yeah, I mean, how I navigated is I, I I hid from it, uh, as a lot of us do, hide from our greatest you know insecurities, our greatest pains, and our greatest uncertainties, the things we don't understand. And I didn't understand why I was given that 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 you know that. Uh, now I see it to some extent as a gift, but I but I at the time that burden. Why why was I the one to give this burden? Why can't I read like everyone else? So I, I navigated by hiding it, and that didn't work out very well, quite frankly, um, and. Yeah, I just I just spent a lot of time hiding it. And it wasn't until I did a talk in a high school. And if anybody's listening and had any aspirations of ever doing any talks in their life, publicly or otherwise, I would encourage everybody to go into a high school. Go back to the high school you brought up in, go to a local high school and speak in a high school. It's it has probably been one of the most amazing educational things for me in my life. And I remember sitting in a in a room one day doing a talk on self-esteem and self-worth and you know, personal, um, you, know, you know, how people view themselves in the world, which I think is the perfect foundation for young people today. And one guy puts his hand up and he says, one young man, he's 13, 14, says, what college did you go to? And I was just about to give him the usual bullshit answer that I've been giving myself and everyone else. And I said, oh, I didn't want to go to college because, you know, I wanted to go into entrepreneurship and I wanted to go into business. The truth was, and I looked at this boy's eyes, this man's eyes, and I went, I can't lie anymore. Number one is he deserves the truth. But number two is I'm too exhausted holding on to this lie. And I shared my truth and I said, I couldn't go to college because I was dyslexic and I failed pretty much every high school exam. And the truth is I'm lonely. I was lonely and I'm lonely now that my friends have gone and I and I couldn't. And I'd never shared that truth before. And ironically, he didn't laugh. He didn't snigger. He didn't judge. He opened up and accepted me in that moment who I was and exactly where I was. And the gift I got was I realized that I'd been using my dyslexia as a victim story to hold myself back because I knew that you know, based on the story I had, I wasn't going to amount to much and I wasn't going to be successful. But in that moment, I began to let it go because he gave me permission to do so. How do
2: other people change their perceptions of their limitations and let go of their victim stories?
1: I think number one is you got to realize you have them. Um, I think most of us, if not everyone I know, walks around with a type of victim story. And the challenge with the word victim And the concept and the energy around victim is that it's typically um, not necessarily accepted, um, rewarded in society. And yet everyone in the world is a victim. And and let me just qualify that before people turn the radio off or shut down iTunes or whatever. Um, A victim is somebody who has had something done to them, uh, which has harmed them physically, mentally, or emotionally by somebody else. Um, and, and that is a victim. And therefore I don't know anybody that hasn't been hurt by somebody else or indeed by themselves. So therefore, arguably we're all victims. We're all victim to some element of our story, some element of our narrative, some element of our truth. And it's, it's the people that, the, 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 ones that are ostracized are the people who walk around saying, poor me. And we think about that as being a victim. The biggest and most worrying part of the, the the group, if you like, is the ones that go around and say, no, no, I'm not a victim at all. I never use my story, my victim story to hold me back. And I find that that's actually not entirely true. So it's recognizing that actually you have been victimized, you have been hurt, and, and knowing knowing that like embracing that bringing that on your journey knowing how it holds you back or how it potentially could hold you back and accepting it and bringing it with you and i think that is the most important thing you can do and when you start to open up and have the courage to realize that actually somewhere you do use a story to play small in this world potentially then you can start to see ways to unravel it to let it go to accept it to move beyond it and step into what you want to do Mm
2: -hmm. so one thing that uh Has always struck me about traumatic experiences is that in the moment when they happen, they tend to be all-consuming. You you just feel. I think my friend Kamal really put it well in his book. He said, "When things are going well, it seems like it's never going to end, and then when things are terrible, it seems like it's never going to be good again, or something along those lines." And I, I found that to be true throughout my life. And often, I only recognize the gift from something painful in retrospect. Do you find that to be the case? And is it possible to uncouple from the pain in the moment?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I think we have, we have these expectations that life is going to treat us in a particular way and that we're going to just breeze through life in a particular way. And I just got off a coaching call with a group of people and so many of them had these expectations that life should be treating them better. And I, I'm not asking people to be negative and assume that it's all going to fall to shit, but I think expecting the bumps in the road, like almost expecting life to be a little bit rough, expecting to have setbacks. Um, it allows you to prepare mentally, emotionally, and in some cases, physically for that. I think sometimes when these traumas happen to us, whether it's losing a job or business not working out, our podcast episode bombing, our book not being accepted, Uh, the girl at the bar saying, no, um, we've placed way too much expectation on the outcome and we've tied our identity and our value into the very thing that we say or we're we're about to execute on. And when it doesn't work out, excuse me, when it doesn't work out, the fall is twice as deep as it needs to be. And it just doesn't need to be that way. So can you separate in the moment from that pain? I think it depends the expectations you come in with in that moment. And also, can you separate your own stuff from what's actually happening. And, and you know, I was talking to a business owner the other day. He wants me to come in and do some work with his team. And, you know, we were talking about some of the nuances that are showing up in his company. And I said, listen, we can debate all day long whether it's your responsibility what goes on in their personal lives and whether it's your responsibility to deal with that or whether they should or should not leave it at the door. But I can tell you one thing, my friend, that a guarantee it's your problem. Because no matter what you do as a human, you have and can only bring your insecurities and your stuff into any relationship that you're in business or otherwise so um i don't know i mean i'd need a specific example can you separate it from in the moment but you're absolutely 100 percent right is the trauma that they experience or people experience or i experience looking back in the moment far outweighed now that i look back and i compare it to other things in my life or i move through life i look back now and Sometimes I, I I judge the story that I shouldn't have been so dramatic, but other times I have a deep level of compassion and realize in that moment, it was everything and it meant everything to me at that moment. Um, so I think sometimes we're a little bit judgmental about how we feel about certain things. And I'd love to people to replace the judgment with compassion. Yeah.
2: So you're talking about... Uh... Things not living up to our expectations. And I wonder, based on your experience, the people that you've worked with, do you think that the the world that we've created with social media and technology has uh, played a role in making these kinds of things worse?
1: Yeah, I do. I mean, I, this, the thing I often cite is when it comes to business or success or momentum, I often cite uh, the movie trains, planes, and automobiles. Uh, in fact, I haven't done that for a long time, but I, I just it just came up as you asked that question. And I often ask people to name the main characters or any of the, the famous characters in the movie, and they always they always name um, you know Steve Martin and John Candy. I think are the, are the two right. main characters. And I go, who else? And they go, no, that was it. And I go, no, who else? Well, there was lots of like other, you know, smaller parts, but who else do you, did you recognize or remember back if you think about it? And, and what no one comes up with is Kevin Bacon. And Kevin Bacon is in, in the first 30 seconds of the film, I think, you know, Steve Martin comes out of the building, looks across the the the, the road, gets eye contact with a young up and coming, um, Kevin Bacon, and they run for a cab and that's the end of Kevin Bacon in the movie. But what people do is they look at Kevin Bacon when he has made his you know foot loose or you know he finally turns up an Oprah or they, they look at a, an article about his home and his car, and they look at that they look at the outcome and that's the benchmark in which they, they 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 go for and that's what they almost expect the outcome to be if they go into acting or whatever i'm not saying they shouldn't have dreams and aspirations of becoming better than they are, but I think it warps us. We look at Mel Gibson and we think about, you know, the you know the Bravehearts and forget about what happened later in his life to some extent, but we forget about the shitty plays, the shitty parts, the pieces where in the background of movies he's serving a drink or washing the floor and he's just a background person. The grafting and the work that these men and women and acting and other businesses had to do in order to get a break to be even allowed to, to um, put their name in the hat for a Braveheart. And I think it distorts what's possible. And when we get kickbacks, I don't think we're going to a deep enough well to drive ourselves and pick ourselves out of it. And I think that's one. The other thing is, I think sometimes we don't have enough of an emotional, meaningful connection to what we're doing, the work that we're doing in this earth. So when we get a setback, we don't have that well of a deeper place because it's beyond us. It's outside of us. It's spiritual as opposed to just intellectual to dig into, to bounce back and fight back and go for the thing that you want
2: Yeah, I think that to me, I think one of the things that has really struck me the most is how impatient people have become uh, because of the fact that we can go from idea to execution so quickly.
1: Sorry, I just, I literally, I I, I literally got off a phone call within the last, you know, hour and a half or so. And there's a beautiful soul, a beautiful lady from uh, just outside of London. And I said, how are you doing? She says, you know, I'm struggling a bit. I had a, had a bit of a setback. And one of my dreams and goals and aspirations was to, to begin to coach people. And she's done a lot of work on herself. And she genuinely has a gift in this space. And there's no doubt in my mind she's going to succeed at it. And she was disappointed. And I said, what happened? She goes, yeah, the conversation didn't deep, go deep as deep as as I thought it would. And I said, okay. And I knew, I just intuitively knew. And I said, so this is your like your fifth phone call. She goes, no, this, it was just our first. And I think that is part of the problem is that we are so impatient. We're expecting things. And a little analogy that I made up is like if I bring somebody to my home and I give them a bulb, a daffodil bulb, and we bring them out to the back garden and they they part the soil with their hands, they put the bulb down, maybe they sprinkle some water and they push the soil, the beautiful, healthy soil over on top of it and press it down. And I go to them, you see, look what you did. And they look at me and it's almost a determination not to see progress, And they look at me and go, yeah, I can't see anything. All I see is soil. And I go, no, but you wait. You wait and see. And I phone them and they come back. Let's just say it's two weeks later. And this beautiful stem is bursting through. This green life is bursting through the soil. And I say, look what you helped create. Yeah, but there's no flower. And I bring them back three weeks later. I don't know how long it takes a daffodil to grow on. And this beautiful, beautiful flower, big bright yellow flower is flowing in the wind and sparkling in the sunshine. I go, look what you helped create. Yeah, but that flower is going to die in two months. And I feel there's so many people that are actually determined not to see how successful they are already. And therefore, it prevents the next 10% showing up. So people
2: are listening to this, and uh, it's the very beginning of a new year. And you and I've had conversations at the very beginning of a new year prior. uh, And I remember one of the first conversations we had about this, uh, about making this the most prosperous year of your life was to not set goals, which was you know very counterintuitive considering that is pretty much the behavior at the beginning of the year. And I guess rather than how do you accomplish your goals, the, the question that I want to ask is how do you ensure that you're satisfied with the way this year is going to turn out or has turned out at the end of it?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I I feel it's less about, I mean, if you think about nutrition, and I'm not a nutritionist, I'm not an expert in this area, but one thing I do know about nutrition, or certainly for myself personally, I used to consume myself with what can I bring into my diet to improve it? And what I was unwilling to look at often was actually forget about bringing anything in. What can I let go of that I know is not serving me? And I think if we, in a nutritional sense, Simply let go of the things that we consume, the things that we drink, the things that we eat, that we know don't suit, or at least reduce those things. And we do nothing else. We'll be most likely healthier. We might have less weight if we, we have a weight challenge, and we most likely would have more energy. And I think it's the same for life. I think I meet people every day who want to be coached, and they want to be taught how to create this and to create that. And the starting point for me is always, tell me about your life now forget about what you want in the future or what's possible in the future. Let's look at your life right now. And let's just play with this for a second. I live in Boulder. Let's just say somebody comes to me, they're living in Boulder and they want to create a business, social enterprise that has an impact. They want it to be meaningful and they want to get paid well to do it. And I go, great. So you're living in Boulder. Yeah. Do you like Boulder? Oh no, 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 no. It's a means to an end. And I go, great. So let's just talk about Boulder. No, no, Philip, excuse me. I'm here to build my social enterprise. And I said, yeah, but you're going to start it in Boulder. And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then once it's big enough, then I'll move to, to, to California or, or New York. And I'm not saying that they have to move in order to have success. But in another way, energetically, they have to move to have a degree of success. In other words, we sometimes ignore the things that are the most essence of who we are, the things that fill us up are are, are take stuff away. If somebody is trying to build a business energetically in a city or a town they really don't like, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it'll most likely take way more energy to do it in a city that you don't want to live in, as opposed to nurturing yourself in a place that you do. I'm using that as an example. Or someone who wants to leave, you know, or wants to get promoted in a day job, but they don't really like the industry they're in. Well, maybe we could pivot the industry you're in to get something that you're more excited about. Maybe as a result of that, you will start to lead and perform at a more accelerated rate. So I think, certainly we spend way too much time looking at what we can bring in, as opposed to acting on what we already know that's not serving us and adjusting those things accordingly. And improving those things, and what ends up happening is they give us permission, and then suddenly we start to see opportunities present themselves that ordinarily we're blind. We were blind to, or we couldn't see.
2: Well, I think that makes a, a perfect segue to start talking about the new book. So, I think where I want to start with this is that you know we alluded earlier to the fact that you're dyslexic, but you've actually written two books, uh, which I think is a drastic change in self perception and identity. Uh, what enabled that? Like where and what caused you to think, okay, you know what? I may be dyslexic, but I have something that's important enough to say that I want to write a book about it.
1: Yeah, it's so funny. I mean, building on the conversation we had earlier, I mean, I remember waking up and I I don't cite moments. There's often periods of my life. And there has been certain things that have stirred me and conversations like the bus driver with my dad may not sound like a big story, but that shaped me. That shaped my my view of how to treat people, whether they're waiters or waitresses or or the busman or whatever. Like everyone should be treated the same. But I remember waking up one morning and I don't know what I'd been doing up to that point, but I remember waking up one morning and I said, holy shit, you know what? I can write. I just can't spell. (laughs) Up to that point, I've been saying, oh, I can't write and I can't spell and I can't do grammar. I can write so well. And, 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 And people might say, God, that's arrogant. It's not arrogant. I actually believe I'm a very good writer. I just can't spell. I can't control the spelling piece unless I go off and spend 10 years trying to spell, which I have no interest in doing and I don't need to in the world today. But I woke up one morning and I told myself that one line, I can write, I just can't spell. And the freedom that came with that began. I did, I did. People then think, you know, you jump out of bed and you start writing your first 25 chapters of the manuscript. It's not about that. It's just that was the spark that gave me a degree of belief. Now, having said that, writing a book on my own is a very challenging, painful process, process in some regards, because I find it very hard to tell story when I'm trying to capture it in, in writing. I find it very difficult to do both. You, on the other hand, because I know I've read some of your stuff. And I've listened to the audios and, uh, you you know, I think you're an incredible writer and I think you can, you can bridge both, both places. Um, so I've had to get support. I've had to get people to interview me and sit down and spend hours with me on the latest book, uh, a gentleman called Tucker Max, who I think gets an unfair rap in the world. (laughs) It's a lot of judgment and maybe rightly so for the books he's written, but I know who he is and who he wants to be. And I've gotten to know him and he spent obscene amounts of time over and above the call of duty to help this concept come to life because he believes in it so much so he is has been an integral part but what he did was he interviewed me extensively took my voice, took my stories, took the stories of the beautiful men and women who've done their one last talks, and put it into the book and made sure that it was done in a way that supported who we are and what we believe.
2: Yeah. Well, let's get into the ideas in the book itself. Uh, You know, I think there are certain passages that I, I highlighted and underlined. And one of the very first things that caught my attention is when you said you can go beyond your story itself. You can dig into your truth and you can share it to help others right now today. So two things. How does somebody dig into their truth and what prevents them from doing it?
1: Yeah, I mean, our our, our story and our truth can be different things. Um, and our truth is contained within our story. But when we tell our stories or we contemplate our stories, we tend to look at the highlight reel. Um, we tend to avoid the chapters, if we can use the, the 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 context of a book. We tend to avoid the chapters in our life that had pain or we were disconnected or we feel we didn't show up. And often, therefore, we ignore those, we don't share those with the world, and therefore we don't accept them as part and parcel of who we are, this earth, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So to me, leaning into our truth and beginning to contemplate sharing that truth with at least one other human being, or maybe more, is not just the very thing that you need to do to free yourself of that, uh, you that, you know, to free and accept that part of you, but it also, ironically, is the very thing that the world needs to hear and see from you before it starts to accept you and themselves because everybody has pain everybody has trauma everybody has embarrassment everybody has shame to some extent everybody has regrets and i and i think the more we talk about this in the world today the more we can accept it as a norm and then begin to you know to move on and not allow these things to hold us back and i'm a huge believer and it's become even more solidified since you and i spoke the last time is i absolutely believe that our greatest gift lies right next to our deepest wound. I believe that more now than ever. Or at least one of our gifts lies right next to our deepest wound. And yet it's the very place where that we're reluctant or in some cases unwilling to look at. And therefore, wouldn't that make some kind of sense of why so many people in the world today are struggling with purpose and and passion and what they want to do when they grow up? Mm.
2: You, you said by connecting with your darkest story then sharing it letting out your pain expressing what you're most deeply ashamed about you free yourself at a core level and uh, that struck me and i think that was you know the section that also caught me my attention right now when you were talking about uh, people like tucker max how do you balance that with the fact that we live in a world where we do have a life that is somewhat publicly on display? There are certain things that people expect of us. And basically, how do you draw the line between that and inappropriate, I guess, is really where I'm going with it?
1: Uh, not un- not 100% sure. Like, are you talking about with Tucker sharing his one well, last talk?
2: I mean, or- any one of us, right? There's obviously there's dark stories, but I think that there are things that are meant for public consumption and there are things that are not uh given who we are. And then I wonder where you find that line.
1: Yeah, I mean I I I I I don't have a line. I I I allow people to to define that line themselves. I'm not asking people to pour their guts out on stage. I'm not asking them to 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 cut their veins and and pour all their blood on the on the stage. It's not what I'm asking. I'm just asking people to, if particularly if they're in a public domain, is do you have the courage to at least give people an insight into some of the challenges that you face and I'll tell you why what the, what the power and the purpose of this is, is, is Tucker, for example, stood on stage, um, and gave his one last talk. And he, you know, opened up with, you know, I can write and sell millions of books. I can create a business that makes millions of dollars. I can have a movie made after my life, but I struggle telling my wife, I love her. I can do boom, 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 boom. Yet I struggle with connecting with my kids and people were looking at each other in the audience who knew him. And they were like, who's this guy? And, you know, Tucker didn't fall on his knees and and collapse and fall in and, and melt into, into nothing. He basically stood there in his power, in his truth and, and basically said, yeah, I can be successful or famous or whatever, depending on your perspective as you look at him. But also I've got my human challenges. And what it did in the audience was gave people, it humanized, him, number one it allow people to see that actually he is challenged as well. And that allows me to feel less insecure and less judgmental towards my own challenges. So I don't know where the line is, quite frankly, I really don't. The line is, is, is dependent on the individual themselves. And I do believe that we all want to make an impact. But one of the challenges and the Achilles heel when it comes to impact is we all want to make an impact in the world, but we want to look good doing it. So where is the hesitation coming from somebody who's unwilling to share part of their personal truth? Is it because they really don't want to hurt somebody else? Are they trying to protect themselves? And I think it's just a a conversation and something worth exploring for each of us individually. Speaking of parents, I had a phone call from my mother this morning. that was shocked, a complete shock, and spent two days processing the one last talk book and instantly made the comment about her. We didn't realize, because I share my one last talk in the book, she says, I didn't realize you were in such pain in school. And she made it all about her. Now, it's not because she's selfish, she's a protective mother, but she said, oh my God, I didn't know. And, and you know, I, it, and my dad used the term um, parental neglect. And he then followed up by saying, I, I realize that's not the case now. So when we hear these stories, we don't make it about the person, we typically make it about us. We go internally and we internalize. And I literally had that phone call this morning with my mom. Um, So I'm not sure I'm answering your question, but I'm trying not to avoid it for sure. Yeah,
2: absolutely. I, I appreciated the fact that you said that what we do is we humanize people in moments like that. And I think that that is largely what I am always trying to get to as an interviewer with the people that I talk to. Because I think that when you see people through the lens of their accomplishments, you tend not to humanize them. You tend to put them on pedestals.
1: Yes hundred percent. And I think particularly entrepreneurs, and I talked to a gentleman called Yannick about this, Yannick Silver, and Yannick said to me one day, and we agreed on this hundred percent, is, is entrepreneurs have their worst goddamn heroes in so many cases. They pick people who have had and achieved wonderful things, but in many cases have horrendous personal lives and have left you know, huge destruction in their wake as it relates to personally. And I think the challenge is that, yes, you can be inspired by people, but a lot of people are trying to model successful people, assuming that they can get their, the outcome, the results that they had, whether it's economically or socially, and they don't have to take the baggage of the personal fallout if there was one. And when we put people on pedestals, we're simply saying one thing. And that was another reason that the book is, is exists is because... I want people to stop putting other people on pedestals and realize that they have tremendous wisdom in, within them that may be sitting on the shelf and may have an inch of dust on it, but I want that wisdom to come out into the world. And it's not just deep, dark stories um, of shame and regret and sadness. I, I want to create an environment where some stories come out that may have some of that, but I also want stories to come out that are beautiful because I believe the greatest gurus in the world are the people in the audience, not necessarily the people on stage.
2: Mm. I love that. Uh, You said when you share your truth, when you're truly vulnerable, people won't just accept you. They they'll literally fall in love with you in that moment because they've connected with you so deeply because sharing your truth and being vulnerable allows them to see themselves, which is a rare and precious gift. And I think that everybody listening to this, all of us understand that intellectually. And yet I think there is a part of us that is afraid to let our guards down and to let people see that. Why is that? I know that I, I I'm very mindful of it. Now I have realized, uh, particularly when it comes to my interactions with, uh, people that I might be dating or have some sort of romantic interest in.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I don't know, if, I don't know where this is coming from, but I remember this beautiful story from a lady called Donna, who was a lady I knew and got to know to the work I do. And she lived in Vancouver and, and, uh, you know, she had divorced a number of years before that. and, she uh, found herself going on a blind date, which she never imagined she'd ever do. And uh, she's at home, and she found herself, you know, getting into a dress and putting makeup on, even though she hadn't worn makeup for probably the previous, you know, eight or nine months. And going to this, um, going to this restaurant, and then meeting this guy. And I don't know how they figured this out. I mean, I, I'm in admiration of this in some respects. They found out within the first ten minutes, and they named it within each other, with, between each other. Hey, listen, there's there's no chemistry. There's nothing else going on here. And that's fine, but let's just enjoy the rest of the dinner. And it wasn't until they named that did they get into who they are as individuals. And she just turned around. He said something like, you know, I prefer women who don't wear makeup, for example. And she goes, oh my God, you're kidding me. She said, I just put on makeup because I thought that's the thing I should do. And I hate wearing makeup and I haven't worn makeup for like, you know, eight or nine months or whatever it was and don't want to wear it for the next eight or nine months. And it was. It was almost they. Did, they had dressed up, got into their armor to go and do battle, um, or to go and impress. And it turns out that neither of them. They were both posturing. Yeah. And I think we are so consumed. Is the word I would use consumed by what people think? And I, with respect to anybody who's listening, to says no, I, I used to be like that. I've let that completely go. I would, with respect, challenge you deeply on that. Is I think we can let it go more and more and more. However. I think the big thing is that we are consumed by people that we don't even know. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the people that we do know, we can accelerate that by a thousand. And I literally have multiple examples. And the other one is the lady who was choking. And I was just about to get out of my chair and run across to her. I give her the Heimlich maneuver, I think it is, in St. Lucia many years ago. And she cleared the steak or the, 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 the whatever the food was in her throat. And she literally was choking. And as soon as she, the first thing she did was she looked around to see who was watching because she was so embarrassed. And and I think that comes from a lack of, I think that comes from a lack of acceptance and ownership on who we are at the core that we're still holding on to what humanity thinks about us.
2: Mm. Yeah, I I remember... uh... You know they they do this thing on the landmark forum where they spend all weekend telling you you're going to have this profound insight at the end of the, end of the weekend and it's funny because people spend all this time thinking about uh, what other people think about them and the sort of breakthrough moment is wait a minute holy shit everybody is doing exactly what I'm doing everybody is so worried what other people think about them that they're not consumed with your bullshit
1: yeah yeah it's 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 a, it's a a pandemic in the world, and yet it's not working because arguably there's never been more loneliness and disconnection in the world. Um, And as I've said multiple times in the last couple of years, you can have 5,000 Facebook friends, 25,000 Twitter followers, even work in an organization or or own an organization. You can even lie next to somebody every night and still be very, very lonely. Um, So there's a real interesting dichotomy and, and conflict going on as it relates to caring what people think so much that it dictates a lot of the decisions that we make in life and um, and and letting go of that and accepting like who we are. Somebody asked me yesterday, she said, you know, w- you know what's the answer? And I said, well, I'm not sure it's a, an answer or a seeker, but I think, you know, we need to connect more as humans and we need to learn to fall in love with ourselves. And I think when we accept who we are and have a healthy degree of self-love and respect towards ourselves, I think what happens is we care less what the world thinks of us and i just think that's that seems to be certainly the antidote that i can come up with right now yeah absolutely uh
2: you know this is another thing you said is that you don't want to do this from a position of dismay anger judgment blame or any of those things feel your anger first process it and work through it so i think that one of the things that i've, I've realized is that we all carry around uh emotional baggage and that baggage tends to weigh us down until we finally let go of it. But I think letting go of it in and of itself is a process. And I I wonder in your experience and the people that you've worked with and the people that you've spoken to, how does this kind of baggage end up getting released?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll give you an example of a, of an owner of a business who came to a retreat with me years ago and he was telling himself one story about his childhood. Uh, In this particular experience, we go into the past. We don't always do that, but in this particular experience we do, because I do believe the past is playing a huge role in our present and in our future whether we know it or not. And the story he was telling himself at that point was he was very, uh, he had a very independent childhood and, you know, he was had a lot of freedom and everything else. But the reality is that wasn't the truth. And I think that's the challenge is, is the story we're telling ourselves actually the truth, or is it what we're holding on to because we're afraid that if it's not the truth, then then something else is. And what he realized was that he wasn't independent. He wasn't given all this space. He was actually just extremely lonely and that actually he had a lot of resentment towards his parents for, for not, for, for isolating him and, and putting him in that situation. And he had never put that, he'd never, ever drawn that conclusion Now, one, if you just hit pause right now or put a period behind the end of that statement, you might go, great, so this guy came all the way to Ireland to find out that he's angry with his mom and dad. Brilliant, Philip, great job, well done. If that's the extent of your work, I think I'll give it a miss, thank you very much. However... He was able to piece it even further. He was going, now I realize why I tell myself I have an open door policy as a leader, but really I am actually a passive aggressive person. So people only tell me to the extent in which they believe that I'll accept it. I won't get angry. The other thing is that I have this wall up emotionally and I don't connect with my children as much as I would like to. And now he knew why. So by going into our past and understanding some of these things and understanding the traumas we've had understanding the pain that we have understanding the anger that we have towards ourselves and other people it gives us an opportunity to lean in and address it and then eventually have conversations i don't think we can let it all go i think we can take some of us some of it with us through the lens of acceptance and we can allow some of it to disappear and that that combination of two means that you're moving forward freer clearer with a clearer mind, a clearer heart, clearer soul, that you can allow people to connect with you in the way that they want to without, you know, holding onto a lot of this resentment and anger that has been creating a fogginess between you.
2: Yeah, I think you, you mentioned, we're talking about resentment, anger, you know, rage and, and disappointment and all of this. And often these things are directed at other people. And one thing that really struck me that you wrote in the book was that when you can separate the person from the behavior, it allows you to express anger as it relates to the behavior, but not the essence of the person, uh, which I, I just thought that was really a beautiful way of looking at it and looking at the people who have heard us and, and all that. But how do you go about doing that? Because I think often it's very easy to couple the behavior uh, with the person.
1: Yeah, I mean, let's let's just use parents yeah. and the poor parents get a hard, <laughs> a hard old. A poor parents get a hard old rap, and the best parenting advice that I've ever given anybody, and this is my truth, is no matter what you're going to do, you're going to screw your kids up. <laughs> um, and what that does is it allows us to take a degree of pressure. This is not to give up on our children. I am a very committed father, but if you're if you're open to the idea, it allows you no matter what you do. If you're too, if you if you cuddle them to death they're going to have an issue with that. If you never cuddle them, they're going to have an issue with that. If you try to do something in the middle, guaranteed you're going to screw it up. So <clears throat> to take a bit of pressure off of perfection, however, never to give up on them. And one of the, the things that inevitably people discover if they're willing to do the inner work is that they're angry at one or both of their parents for doing something, for saying something or not saying something, Often it's what they didn't say causes the stuff. Are they very angry at their father because he beat them or their father because he was a workaholic or their father because he was absent or his father because he was aggressive his father because he pushed and, and tried to live vicariously through the child. But when they re- when they take a step back and they look at the relationship with their mother, they realize that actually the mother was a, a bystander and she allowed it to happen. And often they have resentment there. So where do we go with all this? Why is all this incredibly and massively important in our lives? Is that we, and then we feel disloyal. But I don't want to be angry at my mother. She did the best she could. I'm not asking you to be angry at your mother. But what I'm suggesting is you're angry with her already. What I'm trying to do is get rid of that shit. So bear with me and work with me on this. And when you can separate the behavior from the person, it means you can love the person, but you don't have to like their behavior. And that was a game changer for me. When I start to really understand that and embrace that, then what you can do is you can work on the behavior. It may require you to have a conversation with your mother about it. You can let it go. You can, you can, you can mend it, you can heal it. What happens is this. Number one is the relationship with your mother will deepen, guaranteed if you do the work the right way. So you in actual fact will deepen a relationship, even though you may not even think it's possible to get deeper. And then number two is energetically, you'll find yourself lighter, more focused, you'll find yourself more creative. And what'll happen is what you've done off the ice by patching up and creating closure and connection allows you to be on the ice in a business or an impact space or whatever it happens to be in a much cleaner, clearer, concise, focused, energized way. It's, it's, It's unbelievable how people come to me to improve their business or to get clear on what they want to do when they grow up or to find their purpose. And often it's, it's X does not mark the spot. It's often Y, and X is a byproduct of that.
2: Mm. Wow. Wow. Uh, well, one thing that has, has really struck me every time we, we have a conversation is that you have this ability to have this very strong emotional impact on people. There's a resonance to the way that you work with people, the way that you spread your message. And I wonder how that has been developed, how that has been cultivated. What leads to that? It's almost you know, uh, magical in my mind.
1: So yeah, I, this is where I, I fall apart. <laughs> this is where I don't know what to say. I don't have an answer to that. And and one of the things, and I'm not sure if this is relevant to this conversation today, but one of the things that Tucker said to me um, was, he said, I've I've watched you. And this is his words, not mine. And he says, I've never seen anything like it. And I said, I've learned so much as a leader with my team and my family watching you. And he said, I just want to be around in a room, watch you go one-to-one with somebody. And when he says it, I almost, I almost feel like a fraud. And he said, you know, I want to go through the speaker retreat, the speaker workshop in advance of one last talk, because I want to see what you do and how you do it. And the minute he said that, I felt like, oh my God, he's going to see that actually there is no secret. There is no magic sauce. And the analogy I, I kind of came up with was I, you want me to bake a cake in front of you. Yeah. And you're going to watch me intently with the flour and the fruit and everything else but you're going to expect me to suddenly drop my, my right hand, pull out a little drawer and take out this little fairy dust and sprinkle it on the cake. And you're going to go, what's that shit? What, what did you just do there? And I go, well, that's my grandmother's recipe. And that's been handed down through the generations. And it's a secret. Right. And that's what you're after. That's the magic sauce. And he goes, no, I'm not. And he didn't use this term, I don't think at the time, but it's like somebody said to me one day, he said, have you ever heard anybody saying they're a great breather? that I breathe better than you. I'm an amazing breather. And I think what what all of this has meant for me is that we put very little value on the things that we do naturally. And And I don't know where it comes from, but what I've had to do is wake up for my sake and for other people's sake and realize that it's there. Call it a gift, call it magic, call it whatever you want to, but it's something that's there and I know it's there and I can feel it. And I don't believe it's mine to... Uh, to name, I think it's been given to me as a gift. It is my gift. And a gift is something that is not part of you. It's gift is something you've been given in order to give away to the world. And the thing that, you know, I never imagined I would consider is, you know, the next body of my work is going to be helping other people to, to do this, not the way I do it, but to do it in the way they're doing it. And that's something I've hesitated and resisted for years because I didn't see the value in it. I didn't think it was something tangible. And I didn't think I had the right to go and quote, quote unquote, teach this to other people. So I don't know what this is, sereni but I do know this, is I feel that this has been given to me until the day I abuse it, until the day I die, and then it passes on to somebody else. It, it weighs heavily. It's a burden and it's a blessing all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Wow.
2: So, one, I, I appreciate the fact that it would be taken from you should you choose to abuse it, the, the fact that you said that, because I think that if you look at sort of our culture over the last year, maybe even two in particular, uh, more and more what we've seen is people who have these gifts abusing them in really awful ways. And I, I just wonder, you know, what do you think about all that? Uh, We've seen it from powerful people in sexual assault situations, but we've also seen it in terms of spiritual teachers really abusing their power.
1: I I think you just named it at the very end, abusing their power. That's the problem. It's not theirs. Mm. If they're gifted and they've got a power, they've got a source, they've got an energy and I don't want to get too woo-woo right now, then that's the problem. I don't believe my work is mine. And I know that sounds so weird. And my brain, right, my mind now, my ego is going, McKernan, shut up. Own this shit. You're the man. No one can do what you do. You're the only person on the planet that does this. By the way, you've created this magical system that no one knows, and they've got to pay you thousands of dollars and travel thousands of miles to get a glimpse of it. Yes, I'm very good at what I do, but the work that I do, the essence of the work that I do I don't, but there's a degree of separation. I have agreed, or sorry, to myself, I don't care if the world likes it or not. I've promised to myself I'm never going to sign a copy of the latest book. It's not a marketing ploy. I'm not blaming or our trying under other authors under the bus and saying that you're egotistical because you signed your book. I'm just saying I don't want to own the book to that extent, that this book is written on behalf of the men and women who have done their one last talks and will do them in the future. So the most important thing in all of this, and it's my my one of my, probably my number one fear on earth, is that I will become very lost and abuse whatever gift I've been given from from whoever it is. I don't believe in, in in Christianity in the sense that a lot of people assume I would coming from Ireland. I'm spiritual. I don't believe in religion. But when you start to believe that it's your power, there, the wheels have already started to come off before you've even started. And I've seen so many amazing speakers with a beautiful message set out with a great intention. And slowly but surely, they begin to believe that the hype is all them, that they are the gods, they are the magic, they are the answer, they are the secret. And the inevitable happens and they go on. You see the greatest showman is an extraordinary example. Not a movie I wanted to necessarily watch for whatever reason, but a friend of mine recommended. And I watched it, and the most mesmerizing part of the movie was, how did he get so lost? How did he lose what he set out to create, which was connection for his family and joy for everybody else? And yes, it's Hollywood. Yes, it's a movie, but still we can glean some beautiful messages. And slowly but surely, he started to get lost, and he put somebody on a pedestal, and he started to believe his own hype. And before you know it, it all fell apart. Now, finally, he saw it. But a lot of us don't get an opportunity to bounce back twice. So it's a big fear of mine. I haven't figured it all out, Serini, but I'm doing my best. Mm.
2: This gift, do you think every one of us is given a gift of some sort?
1: Yes. I, I just cannot not believe that we all have it. I cannot not believe. And and, 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 and I, I just it, it's a defiant belief that I have. And it's not because... I want it to be true because it, it fuels business or I want it to be true for any other reason. I absolutely believe in my heart we've all been given a gift of sorts. And our job is to find out to the best of our extent what that is, to at least experiment with it. And, I, and only one way I can describe and the only the best way I can describe is that I'm, the amount of people I've asked to speak at one last talk who said to me, oh, me? No, 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 no. Oh, no, Phil, I don't have a story worth telling. And I go, well, with respect, I disagree. And each and every one of those people have stood up and shared a story that may not impact you, it may not impact me, but it but it means something and it has impacted many people that have gone through what they've gone through. So do they have to become a coach? Do they have to become a speaker? Do they have to write a book? No, but they can bring it into their own home. They can bring it into their own business. They can bring it into their own community. I think one of the challenges that impact is this intangible thing that has been blown up into this very intimidating concept. And we think impact has to be millions. And yet impact, I believe can be one because statistically we have direct influence over 258 people to be precise from a scientific standpoint. So if you influence one person, your 12-year-old boy, that boy will go on and, and, you know, for the rest of his life, and he will impact so many people in the future. So, to me, impact is relative. Mm-hmm. I love that.
2: I, I I think what what I really appreciate is the fact that when you say that everybody does have this gift is that it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to manifest in some sort of external expression, which I think that when we look at this idea of a gift, we typically think of it as something that has to manifest as some form of external expression, whether that be building a company, writing a book, or being a coach. Um, But I think that this is a really interesting way of looking at it.
1: Yeah, it's a really, really good point. And I think the more we obsess about it, actually, and I'm just going to use, kind of build on your terms of manifesting externally, the more we obsess about that, the more actually we suppress the gift itself. In many cases, we become obsessed about how we're going to make the impact and how it's going to show up in the outside world. And with respect, a lot of that is a lot of ego, is that we want to make sure that we're seen to be, you know, making an impact in the world. And the more pressure we put on ourselves to do that, the less extrinsic impact it does have. I think the more we can kind of internalize and play with it, you might write a poem that suddenly is published. You might do a painting that has meaning to you. You might do, you know, it's, it's almost like the letting go of needing this to be something that it's not. And that is something I'm almost battling with on a daily basis with One Last Talk, is do we want this thing to be a global movement and 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 to to, to go into many cities around the world, irrespective of whether we individually believe it has the capacity or people want it? And then I I go back to this place of my truth is I want to gift this to the world. I want people to run one last talk in their homes, in their offices, in their communities. I want to gift it. I don't want to sell a, a license. I want to gift it to the world. And I, And I keep getting pulled into this, but what if we could monetize? What if we do this? What if we do? And I'm hearing all these voices telling me we should blow this up and this is how we should do it. And I keep having to bring myself back to my core. My core, my intuition is telling me we just do this organically and we gift it to the people that want it. And we trust that if it's in the right hands with the right people, that it'll be treated with the sort of sacredness that it deserves. And therefore it'll do what it needs to do.
2: Wow. Um, well, I think that makes a really fitting end to yet another poetic and insightful conversation. So I want to ask you, I think for the fourth time, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: I, I would have to say their truth. I, I think the truth, you know, the more that I, and I I've, I've, I think I've grown up a lot since even you and I have talked. Um, I think that there is nothing that defines somebody greater than their truth. And the sadness is that sometimes one's truth is the very thing that we don't want ourselves or humanity to see. And if we choose to hold onto that for the rest of our lives, then people can't fully see us. And therefore they can't fully accept us. And therefore they can't fully love us. Um, And then we wonder why we're lonely. So to me, what makes us that is, is allowing people ourselves, number one, and other people to see all of us warts and all. And that makes us absolutely unmistakable. Mm.
2: Amazing. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming back to the show for a fourth time. Uh, Where can people find out more about the new book and everything else that you're up to?
1: Yeah. The One Last Talk book is on Amazon. Um, they can go to onelasttalk.com and, and follow the the movement. And, um, that's the best place. And com is my own personal website. And, and thank you so, so, so much for continuing to believe in us and what we do and, and how you do it. And, and I just love your, your writings, your energy and what you do. And, and I'm just, it's a pleasure and an honor to be a part of it. Awesome. Thank you so much. And
2: for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
3: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.